Now, we're just going to take a few minutes. Um, I, I, I started this series on 1 Corinthians um, about the mess uh, of the Corinthian church. And uh, one of the reasons that I, I wanted to get into this, this book is because it, it, it diagnoses many of the situations and what happens to the church that leads to a place being spiritually dark. Now this fall, we're going to be doing a, a Bible study during the week on the church. We're going to be talking about some of the history of the church, capital C, um, and uh, really getting into, as best we can, um, some of the differences. I think it's important that we understand that everything that has the word church in front of it is not a biblical church. Um, and um, while we don't want to walk around casting judgment on people, uh, we, are, we need to be aware that there is a lot passing for church today that is not church. And the Corinthian church is, is an example of that. Um, I'm not going to le- read a big long passage and we will be done by 11.15, 11.20. Um, so we'll be done at a regular time. But I want to address an issue that I think is super relevant to us today um, about the church. Now, when we talk about New England being dark, being spiritually dark, you need to understand that as, as a guy who studied church history, you know, and I actually have a piece of paper on the wall that says I'm a master of church history, right? I have another one that says I'm a master of useless knowledge, but we don't talk about that. Um, but but I, I did a master's degree in church history and particularly focused on New England um, and the Baptists in New England. Because we almost never hear about Baptists in New England. When you talk about church in New England, you usually talk about the pilgrims. Um, you talk about the big white churches, which ironically, all those white churches in all of these towns in New England um, were not originally white because they were started by Puritans and Puritans did not believe in painting things. So those churches were all originally just natural wood. They got painted white when they started to rot and everybody went, oh, maybe we should paint this white. Um, but we talk about Cotton Mather and the Salem Witch Trials, and there's a lot of this stuff talked about, but that's not really the spirit, spiritual heritage of New England. New England actually um, was an extremely vibrant um, spiritual place in the, the late 18th century. Um, there was a guy by the name of Hezekiah Smith, who I've studied quite a bit, read his diaries. Some of you are familiar with this. I tell this story all the time. Man was a great preacher, um, but could not tie a horse to a, a, a tree and lost horses like crazy. I've read his diaries. He's constantly losing his horse. I'm like, dude, tie the reins to something. This is not this complicated. Um, but Hezekiah Smith was actually the pastor of First Baptist Church in Haverhill, um, Massachusetts, um, for years. He, he was the pastor there, and he was a, a circuit rider before circuit riding was a thing. Um, he, uh, he traveled, preached to um, everywhere from um, uh, Kennebunk, Maine, um, which at the time was actually Indian territory, um, and part of Massachusetts, uh, all the way up to Pittsfield, uh, Pittsburgh, uh, New Hampshire, up in Coas County, um, all the way down to Vermont and through Worcester and Sturbridge and all that part of Massachusetts. He, he established churches all along the way. He was George Washington's um, chaplain during uh, the beginning of the American Revolution. 
Um, and, and he actually was one of the churches that he started. A member of that church wrote the first part of the First Amendment. Um, and you have never heard of Hezekiah Smith. All right. Um, at, at that time, in the, that time, the, the, the Baptist churches of New England was one of the strongest blocks of voters in America. Uh, well, what happened? Why is it that New England is so dark? Um, and I, and I want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 6, and 7. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to hit a couple of, of highlights. Um, moms and dads, you may need to explain a lot of details about these chapters to your kids or choose not to. You do whatever you want. I'm not going to get into any of the details, but Paul is dealing with the issues in the families in the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1, it says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. One of the problems in the Corinthian church was that they were tolerate, tolerating outright sin in the name of love. Now you can make a lot of applications to that in the present world. I'll leave you to do that. But the fact of the matter is that we should expect the world, those outside of the church, those outside of Christ, those um, who are not, uh, not calling Christ their Lord and Savior, we should expect them to live lives that we would consider immoral, amoral, um, conduct unbecoming. We would, we would look at, we should not be surprised that our world lives in a standard that we consider immoral, immoral. We should not be surprised that people consider normal things that the Bible calls sin. We shouldn't be surprised by that. Sometimes people are, and I never really understand that. I never really understand why people look at sinners and say, why do sinners sin? Well, sinners sin, this is profound, because they are sinners. We sin because we are sinful. That's what we do. But in the church, there is an expectation of the sanctity of the things that God calls holy. If God calls it holy, we should call it holy. And in the Corinthian church, rather than treating the relationship of a man and his wife as the holy union that the Bible treats it as, as foundational and fundamental as we talked about a couple weeks ago, they were literally looking at a guy who had a relationship with his father's wife and going, uh, isn't it amazing how tolerant and open and loving we are that we welcome this man into our congregation? And Paul, it's in the Greek, but Paul basically says, oh, what are you thinking? It is never right to deny the fundamental facts of creation and scripture and the work of God in the name of love. It is never right. And their fun, the reason that they were doing this, by the way, is they lack this little thing that we call discernment. Now in chapter 6, Paul kind of has this diatribe about 
taking each other to court. And people have made a big deal about that. But it's really an illustration of the reality that they, these people don't understand um, how the world is supposed to work. They're, they're completely missing the point. Look at verse, uh, chapter 5 and verse, 13, or verse uh, 12. What have I to do with judging outsiders? In other words, don't worry about the world. He says, if not those inside the church whom you are to judge... God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Now, take that word judge. The Greek word just means to have a standard and decide what is right and wrong, good and evil. That's all that means. We read the word judge and we're like, judge not lest you be judged. I have never, by the way, had that verse quoted to me by somebody who was doing something good. You say, you say to them, well, that, that, that's, you shouldn't be doing that. They say, judge not lest you be judged. I'm like, no, 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 there are, there's a line. There's a standard. Now, Jesus does say, you make sure that you've got your house in order before you go around telling other people to get their house in order. It's always amazed me um, when people um, provided me, this is a little side thing, but they give me parental advice, right, about what I should or shouldn't have done with my daughter while their child was behaving badly. You know, and um, but discernment is is a standard. It's a goal. It's it's an objective, and we set a parameter, and we say, well, this is right and this is wrong. Now, you could make a lot of discussions about what is right and wrong in relationships between men and women, but I think we can all agree: father's wife off limits. Right? I mean, I think we, I think we could all pretty much agree with this. And Paul's point is, because you didn't set a standard, because you didn't go to Scripture and learn discernment and exercise it in small things, you've lost any basis to exercise it in large things. And we so often in the church, we have an, a, an epidemic in churches in the world where we say, well, that's a minor thing. Let's not make a big deal about it. But then we have no foundation to deal with the major things. And what happens then is when we, when we don't have a standard, when we don't, we don't draw a line and say this is good and this is evil. And I'm not saying, by the way, there aren't difficult situations to discern. I'm not saying it isn't hard to make decisions sometimes. But when we don't have a line of holiness, all right, and 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 sin, when we don't make that line, we don't have that line, it gets really, really hard to sort out the simple things. Because here's what's happening in this church. So if we can, in the name of love, tolerate somebody who's in this kind of relationship, well, then we start talking about well, what about our relationships that exist? What about our husband and wife relationships? I mean, if we can tolerate that because love is love, right? Um, then, I mean, what's the big deal if I have a mistress? You know, love is love. What, what's the big deal if, if in order for the name, uh, in the name of ministry, I abandon my wife because I'm doing good things? Now, I grew up, Mike's talking about growing up in the church. I grew up in a preacher's home. I got to see a whole lot of married couples where one spouse had abandoned the other in the name of ministry. Now, they were still legally married, maybe even living in the same house. But you know what I mean. 
they were a million miles apart. And, and um, you know, she, the, the wife might have been uh, a very, uh, very vocal member of the church. And, and um, you know, I mean, I grew up, I grew up in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. We went, we start, we went down into Virginia and Georgia and, and those kind of places to go to camp meetings, which is something most of you never heard of. Um, we go to camp meeting and the wife, the pastor's wife be sitting there. Her hair was 18 feet tall. It had a hat on top of it. It must have been perched by somebody wearing it on a step ladder. Um, and she, and she sat in the front and, mm, amen, amen. But their home, you found out from their kids because I was a preacher's kid. So who did I hang out with when I went to these kind of things? I hung out with the other preacher's kids. We were all sitting in the corner. It was kind of like being the brothers-in-law at a family reunion. You just all go into one room and watch whatever sport the, the vo- most vocalist of you wants to watch. I usually wind up falling asleep to NASCAR because that's what my brothers-in-law like. I don't, I don't understand how it's a sport. Left, 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 left. Um, stop, left. Uh, and... Um, we would get in the corner and I'd find out all kinds of things. Well, you know, my mom, you know, she, she, uh, you know, my, my mom and dad, they sleep in separate rooms and, and he has a girlfriend and, and da, 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 and all these issues. It's very, very easy when you're not, you're not drawing a line of this is what God has consecrated. This is what is holy. This is what is good. And this is what is evil. And this is what is wrong. When you're not drawing that line, it's very, very easy for simple things to get confused and confuddled. And for the most sacred things of the church to become deconsecrated. He talks about this in chapter 7. He says, chapter 7 and verse uh, verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body. Most men like to read the first verse, not the second one. But the wife does, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of control. There were men and women in this church who were abandoning their spouses in the name of holiness. And and what was resulting was more sexual immorality. Temptation, letting Satan into the church. He talks about, later on in chapter 7, he talks about um, each of us having a calling. Now, I believe the Apostle Paul, I wouldn't take a bullet for this, but I actually believe that Apostle Paul's wife died in childbirth. I can explain to you why I believe that um, later. I could be completely wrong. I get to heaven, he'll slap me upside the head and say, how dare you say such a thing. Um, but he, he appears to have been a widower, and he talks very, very brokenheartedly about childbirth. Um, and so I've kind of inferred that, um, but Paul is not married and he says to them, he says, I wish that you could be like me. He is not saying, I wish that everybody could be single because that's not realistic. And also that's not how God created us. Some of us are called to be single. Some of us are called to be widows and some of us, um, most of us are called to be husband and wife working together. Um, But he says, the problem is, um, we look at everybody else, we're judging everybody else. 
Um, and and some fe- some folks were saying, well, we're super spiritual because we we even though we're married, we physically separated from one another for the purpose of the ministry, and that that can't possibly go well. And then other people are saying, look at me, I'm single, and that makes me holy. In fact, there's a whole uh, Christian denomination that's clergy is like that, and that's worked out well for them. Um. There's this, there's this, this misunderstanding of, of what it is, who you are, and what you're supposed to be. Um, and, and they're justifying all that. You can see at the end, chapter, chapter 7 and verse 25, um, you can see, and I'm not going to get through all of it. Um, he says, I command concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give judgment as one by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress... It's good for a person to remain as he is. He doesn't mean resign yourself to being married if you're married. He means you live in what God has put you in. You live to the fullness in that relationship. He says, um, uh, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. In other words, are you not united together? Don't try to tear that apart. God created that. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. He talks about, he's like, the marriage union is an important part of the church. And, and if you're in it, you need to work on it. And if you need to be in it, you need to do it the right way. But what was happening was there were people walking around going, well, don't get married. You're engaged. Don't get married. For the sake of the gospel, stay single. There is no engaged person in the history of the universe that that was a good argument for. Well, I've committed my life to stay with this woman, but I haven't legally entered into a contract yet about this. Well, you should stay signal for the purpose of the gospel. That'll work. That's not going to work. They were losing their discernment. They were falling apart. You say, what does this have to do with the church of New England? What does that have to do with spiritual darkness? What happened in our region is that churches went from being fervent about the work of the gospel and holiness to being committed to being an institution all right so they built their building they got their mortgage and they had to maintain their institution at all costs and then it became the institution rather than christ and then christ was escorted out the back door and they deconsecrated the church in the name of success. They got rid of the barriers of holiness in the name of love. They got rid of the preaching of the gospel in the name of acceptance and tolerance. Um, and they, they eventually, in order to try to, in efforts, well-intentioned efforts to reach the world, they ceased to become, be the church and became the world. How many of you saw the video that's been circulating on social media, the the glitter um, uh, um, creed? Have any of you seen this? This is a, a pastor, and I use that term very loosely, who is leading a Christian worship service. I believe it's a Methodist church where she literally says that love is love. God has created us to shine as whoever we identify to be 
Because God has no gender. God has no, no discernment. God has no rules. And she just goes through this, goes through this, goes through this. And just when you think she can't get more heretical, she do. It gets to the point, it gets to the point, I'm like, I'm like, whoa, what is going on here? That's what happens. When we don't draw the line and say, this is holy. You say, well, it's more important that we, that people hear the gospel than we worry about holiness. That is never going to work. If you don't have the message of the gospel and the transformation that the gospel brings into the lives of believers, you will lose your way and you will be spiritually dark. Now, we saw this happen in liturgical churches. You all know my opinion. It also happens in a whole lot of churches that are claiming to be evangelical. Claiming to be, uh, look at all the people that are coming through our doors and getting saved and being baptized and all this stuff. The question isn't how many people did you get wet? The question is how many people have been transformed by the gospel? The question isn't how many seats does your sanctuary have and how many people do you have in it? The question is are you serving the head of the church? And sadly, a lot of what passes for church has no interest in Jesus, has no interest in his standard of holiness. And just like the Corinthian church, do you know what evidence we would have for the Corinthian church if it weren't for the book of 1 and 2 Corinthians? Absolutely none. That church disappeared. There is no record of them outside of the, of the Bible. There are no ruins of a church in Corinth. It is completely erased. And the sad thing is, probably, it's because despite Paul's best efforts, everything was more important than the holiness of the gospel. You cannot deconsecrate the, the rest of the scriptures in the name of of the gospel. That's your big idea today. You cannot deconsecrate the rest of the scripture. Look, I got a warning. We might have a flood. The rest of the gospel. The rest of the scriptures in the name of the gospel. That's the question I ask when I sit in any church. They believe in the whole thing or just the front thing? To get people saved. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, save us from the pitfalls of our humanity as we lead the church, as we walk together. May you be glorified in us, not just because we are good, but because you are good. May we find our identity in the holiness of your character and the message of the gospel in its fullest, fullest measure, including not only our journey to faith, but also our commitment to Christ. May you be glorified in all we say and do. We pray this.